Fantastic sound. I'm Jim Parody, uh, and I'm a member of the Program in Writing and Humanistic Studies. We're one of the co-sponsors of this conference, for obvious reasons. We're talking about things writerly as well as many other aspects of media. Uh, I want to welcome you all here and to welcome our very distinguished panel of guests. Uh, what I'm going to ask people to do is uh, offer five, uh, 10 to 15 minutes of their thoughts on what they have seen and experienced in the conference, and then maybe make some suggestions about uh, where things might go from this point, or what sorts of things in the future uh, we might expect. Uh, the first speaker is Mary Bryson, and she's professor in the Faculty of Education and director of the Center for Cross-Faculty Inquiry and the Network of Centers and Institutes in Education. In 2000, she was a recipient of the Canadian Pioneer in New Technologies and Media Award. She has numerous publications on theoretical treatments of gender and technology, queer media theory, and equity in education, including... Uh, uh, radical Interventions, Identity Politics, and Differences in Educational Praxis. This is a publication by SUNY Press. Our second speaker is, uh, will be Marlene Manoff, and she's Associate Head of MIT Library, Humanities Library. Uh, she gave me, I'm sorry. Uh, she has a PhD in English and a master's degree in Library Science, English, and Comparative Literature. She has written about the social and political implications of building library collections and the impact of digital technologies on both humanities scholarship and the role of libraries. Several of her published essays are available through MIT's DSpace. Our third speaker is John Durham Peters, who is a professor of communication studies at the University of Iowa. He's the F. Wendell Miller Professor of Communication Studies at the University of Iowa, a media, histori a media historian and social theorist. He has published widely, including Speaking into the Air, A History of the Idea of Communication, which traces out broad historical, philosophical, religious, cultural, legal, and technological contexts for the study of communication. Very important early work. Most recently, he has published Courting the Abyss, Free Speech and the Liberal Tradition, 2005, he has held fellowships with the National Endowment for the Humanities, the Fulbright Foundation, and the Leverholm Trust. And finally, Thomas Pettit, Associate Professor at the Institute of Literature, Media, and Cultural Studies, University of Southern Denmark, where he teaches on late medieval and early modern literature and theater, and on folk traditions. His research focuses on tradition-born texts and performances such as ballads, folk songs, legends, customs, and folk drama. Studied both as cultural productions in their own right, with a distinct vernacular aesthetic, and in relation to the conventional literary and cultural history of late medieval and early modern periods. He is representing the Gutenberg Parenthesis Research Forum at the University of Denmark. So we will start with uh, Mary, and we will each person in order, and then we will open up for questions. Thank you. Thanks, Jim. This is my first Media in Transition conference, and it has been a truly stunning conference, and I can hardly bear to index that it's almost over. But uh, in uh, indexing how wonderful it was, I want to thank the 
organizers, David, Henry, Brad, and of course all of you. I've learned a great deal here from your fabulous work. I framed my comments as a mashup aggregated from a cluster of questions and observations that I sketched out over these three days. The comments are, of course, constrained by my theoretical preoccupations, democratization, difference, and public media, and in particular, the critical project of unthinking neoliberal stories of a progressive modernity, a project that I've taken to calling recently Adventures in Deconstruction in honor of the late Eve Kosofsky Sedgwick. I hope that my comments point to emergent edges of scholarship, places of persistent stuckness, massive disagreement, and sometimes awkward silences and gaps, all of which are likely good to think with as we make our way into the present of the future imperfect of media studies. My initial read on this iteration of the Media in Transition conference was that it was specifically focused on the tropes of transitions and temporalities of media generally and in relation to storage and transmission, questions about what Stuart Hall profitably discussed as encodings and articulations. One way to think about a big picture then is to ask, what time is it here? How do temporal politics underwrite major axes of the political life of objects, object stories and the folks who author them? And whose time is it that animates our primary preoccupations as theorists of media? So how should we begin to talk about what or whose time it is here? For starters, it will be good to begin with border crossing. It was interesting for me as a Canadian to see that the conference was framed by the work of the great Canadian media theorist Harold Innes. Thinking back in time with Innes and his student McLuhan brings particular issues into focus. In 1959, McLuhan gave a talk to more than a thousand educators gathered in Chicago entitled Electronic Revolution, Revolutionary Effects of New Media. McLuhan was searingly aware of the epochal shifts brought about by media and the difficulties of thinking temporalities. As he used to say, we drive into the future using only our rearview mirror. McLuhan had this to say, in the electronic age, we are threatened by new, fast-moving and flexible media. While we sit in a Magino line, convinced of the importance of our position, of course, Johnny must read. He must follow the lines of print. He must roll that hoop down the walk. He must roll his eyes in lineal sequential fashion. We have only to proceed to engraft the old right-handedness on his new left-handedness in order to win our point. But in the meantime, we shall have lost his attention and he may be subdued, but he will be utterly confused the young can only conclude that we are not serious. And this is the meaning of their decline of attention." End quote. Well, I would hope that the young might conclude that here, we are actually very serious, and that the exciting work happening here might indicate lines of flight for thinking very carefully about the complexities of media within the transitive spheres of globalization. 
So a key first overarching question for me is how to theorize historical disjuncture in relation to the study of media. How shall we think our way into the present, given that we are of necessity navigating multiple and disjunctive temporalities, the temporalities of secularism and religion, the temporalities of modernity and postmodernity, of capital, of virtual life and certain death? machinic temporalities, and so on. The problem of time and the politics of temporality in media studies is not just about the challenges faced by adopting a discontinuous historiography where past, present, and future are of necessity intertwined, but of complexities in scale with multiple and overlapping forms of time that are frequently in incommensurable tension. David Thorburn put temporality squarely in view at the opening plenary, where he enunciated the problem of speed and of flux in relation to our collective ambivalence, immersed as we are in the ceaseless spectacle of transition. After that first session, a coffee break conversation with John Maxwell, where we were speculating on my own ambivalence about Facebook in particular, yielded an interesting insight about his partner's use of Facebook late at night when the kids have gone to bed, a cloud of users he called late-night moms, which reminded me in a good way of the multiple temporalities that don't immediately come to mind or are either invisible or excessively visible in this kind of setting. A brief trip to the Cambridge side shopping center on day one since unconscionably I had left Vancouver with only one pair of socks brought home to me viscerally the disjuncture between the cultural diversity of that place and this place, that time and this time here. Thinking back to Innes in particular, I've been struck of late by the relative absence of political economy critique as well as discussions of the problematics of difference in contemporary media studies scholarship. With the wholesale substitution of code for logos and an always-on, continuous partial attention chronos of virtuality has come, perhaps, what Zizak calls the post-ideological, an incapacity for critique to be legible at all. Whereas for Derrida, Difference or the instability of meaning was an ontological grammar for the democratic project. It seems fair to say that this keen insight into the project of resignification has moved away from political critique and a radical ethics of self-formation and into a depoliticized discourse of style. At the archives plenary, Lisa Gittleman's index of herself as optimist but not utopian provided an appropriately complex corrective to more jubilant forms of liberalism. Think the Sixth Sense demo at TED. Gittleman's discussion of the absence of labor in particular in narratives concerning the production of the archive, in fact, of practices of narration that efface and disavow labor was very instructive. At the end of Precarious Life, Judith Butler proposed to, quote, reinvigorate the intellectual projects of critique and create a sense of the public in which oppositional voices are not feared, degraded, or dismissed. 
She asserts that cultural criticism's task is to return us to the human where we do not expect to find it. Media occasion new theories of the possible, and one of the places where we need to rethink some of the key constructs we work with here is around impassioned uses of two axiomatic terms, publics and participation, to frame arguments about social change and civic media. Frequently, these invocations of publics and participation seem a little too close to what political theorists refer to as populism, that self-expression is the engine that brings about political change for the embattled. Lest we forget, a very good example of populist politics mobilized by then new media was the pre-Weimar Nazi party. And on the current front, it is populism, publics, and Facebook that gave us Proposition 8 in California. John Edward Campbell's nuanced discussion of race, Kate Hennessy and Nancy Van Leuven of indigeneity, and Adam Klein of the white power movement, racism and hate speech in the race, nationality, and digital technology session, provided an excellent example of methodologies astutely attuned to the complexities of public spheres. In the YouTube session this morning, Henry Jenkins' brilliant critical history of YouTube temporalities reminded us of the risks in decoupling self-expression from inbuilt options to act. On the theme of the post-human and the renewed importance of critical accounts that might generate momentum for queer archive projects, Rick Prellinger's invocation of the construct of disintermediation that comes to media studies via economics is a good stimulus to think about how the space between storage and transmission or encoding and articulation is enunciated theoretically. I've found myself reaching frequently lately for a better construct than remediation, which is all too frequently used as an explanatory placeholder that papers over the absence of an adequate argument. It struck me in listening to Petra Kwan's excellent paper on Donji fandom in the cult media and global fandom session that the homoerotic boy love narratives her female Chinese fans generate and transmit is an interesting example of an archive of queer fiction produced en masse where legibility does not depend on the Eurocentric and homonormative invocation of any actually queer author. Such an account recalibrates the explanatory grid connecting storage and transmissions and opens up the archive since we've decided in advance that we cannot know who belongs and what might become of desire. That disintermediation might subtract layers of governmentality is superficially appealing, but maybe the best thing about the idea of disintermediation is to follow Karen Barad's lead and to shift the explanatory focus in talking about relations between people and objects away from an excessive reliance on linguistic signs. Language, or more specifically discourse, as the primary remediation zone, the stairway to agency, and toward the multitude of things and their relationalities and organizing practices. The work that lies ahead 
might be then carefully to articulate multiple and complex relationalities between nomadic subjects, counterpublics, heterotopic spaces, and artifacts that are always already problematically lodged within a political economy of consumption and misrecognition. As Foucault concludes, a way forward here would be to, quote, make the intelligible appear against a background of emptiness and deny its necessity. We must think that what exists is far from filling all possible spaces to make a truly unavoidable challenge of the question, what can be played, end quote. And as for MIT-7 and the world of possible futures, I have just two suggestions, one radical and improbable, a thought experiment, and the other ephemeral. So first, walk the talk differently. Mobilize and re-territorialize the media in transition event itself across borders. Offer up to multiple locations outside of the US the opportunity to host MIT-7. And for the ephemeral, the beginnings of a tagline for MIT-7, spectacular mobilities, colon, blank, blank, blank. You perhaps can fill in the blanks. Thanks, and see you in two years. to describe what played out here over the past few days is, that, is as an attempt to find a language to describe our evolving environment. Although we do have some interesting new coinages, we really do not yet have an adequate language to describe new developments. We rely on metaphors drawn from earlier cultural formations. One set of metaphors bearing a huge amount of weight at this conference and elsewhere are library and archive. These terms are central to our conceptions of storage, transmission, and cultural memory, but are used so broadly and so ambiguously that they are um, barely understood by actual archivists and librarians. Back in 2004, I wrote in quite positive terms, actually, about what I then called the creative and compelling discourse growing out of Derrida's and Foucault's conceptions of archive. And I myself continue to use the term archive in the loosest and most ambiguous way to describe certain effects of digital culture. But over the last few days, I've begun to think that this discourse stands in the way of our developing new terminology to speak or think about collections of digital objects, especially when they involve new services and new functionalities. The more recent adoption of the term repository has not been especially helpful, and it's rapidly losing any specificity that it actually once had. My own take on this conference is a function of a career in librarianship. Uh, in some ways, I've been very happy to hear what has become an almost universal acknowledgement of the volatility and mutability of the digital record that has been remaking the field of librarianship, not to say scholarship in general, for more than a decade. I'm happy to hear so much discussion about the implications of these issues, and I'm thrilled to know that some Europeans are devoting significant resources to addressing issues of digital preservation. 
But it does seem to me that we're still at a loss when it comes to questions about what should or should not be saved. Librarians and archivists have been discussing the social and political implication of selection decisions for a very long time. But now that so many people are creating and collecting digital objects and files, suddenly, suddenly there's a much broader conversation. And this is a good thing. But what I did take away from many of the discussions on this topic is that there is no broad cultural consensus about these issues and that we have many more discussions ahead of us. Uh, I did want to say something about how impressive the international nature of this conference was and especially that Thursday night event. And um, I want to mention a couple of the observations of my colleague Patsy Baudouin who also works for the MIT libraries, but who has a background in archives. And I'm sure she'll correct me if she thinks I am misrepresenting her. But um, she suggested that there needs to be more discussions about standards and collaboration among archives, especially if we're to address copyright issues. And she proposed that we need people to theorize the connections between rights and standards. And obviously there is a pretty rich theoretical literature written mostly by non-U.S. archivists uh, that deserves more attention uh, theorizing the archive, but um, obviously there's, there's a whole lot more work to be done. Anyway, it was a great conference, and thanks. Thanks very much. And next we hear from John Peters. Hi. Um, I'd like to share three short reflections uh, about the conference and also have to tell you an apology that I have to leave at 1.30. It's not a, a comment on anything. Um, the the uh, first comment is simply about the impossibility of the task of doing any kind of summary. Um, and basically what we're looking at is a problem of what the Germans beautifully call Übersichtlichkeit, or overseeability, that in media studies we are so diverse, so miscellaneous, that the question is, how do we organize our knowledge? How should um, knowledge even be organized at all, I think is one of the, the uh, key issues that, that face us. Just zipping through the, um, the, uh, the program, I notice that in terms of the dramatis personae here, we have archivists, artists, scholars, librarians, practitioners, theorists, teachers, programmers, curators, administrators, performers, information resource managers, among others. And topics, we had Bollywood dance, Burkina Faso newsreels, Beowulf, Baran's vision of networks, bad copies, and Blake archived, only stick with one letter of the alphabet. Um, and it's, it's um, there are in the history of the universe and the history of the human species lots of ways of organizing knowledge, and this is a fundamental media question. It's a question about storage and transmission. How do we organize um, um, uh, what we keep? It, in modernity, as the late historian Ken Camille argued, there have been two dominant models. One would be the 17th century cabinet of curiosities in which the point is to accumulate a wild array of hybrids of, of natural and artificial, um, just kind of a, a, a wild spectacular, spectacular display of, of miscellaneities. Versus the 18th century, as opposed to Baroque, in, uh, cabinet of curiosity, you have the neoclassical 18th century 
encyclopedia, in which the point is to organize knowledge according to principles, preferably a kind of you know, biological system in which everything is much more transparent and laid out. It's very clear to me that in terms of media studies, we are in the cabinet of curiosities uh, moment, and that um, perhaps in terms of knowledge generally, that after a 20th century a narrative which started to crumble by the 60s and 70s of positivism and professionalism came maintaining knowledge in its, in its encyclopedic form. We've seen a proliferation of, of studies, fields ending with studies, uh, for example, that really question that very encyclopedic project. Sort of nice that Thomas Kuhn, uh, Structure of Scientific Revolutions, was actually published in the Vienna Circles Encyclopedia of Unified Knowledge. It was the last volume. Um, in that encyclopedic project and sort of um, announce the uh, de uh, decay or disillusion of it. So um, how, do we, how do we organize our knowledge, I think, is, is one of the, uh, the uh, great questions for our field, but also for people who think about storage and transmission and organization. I think that's the third in this triad that, that we need to be thinking about. Um, that's, a, that's a big question. The second point I would make is it's a mild praise of loss or of uh, attrition. I, um, in the last panel I was at, Sam Smiley very uh, provocatively said, Fail failure can be a positive outcome. And I think it's great that all kinds of stuff has not come down to us. Um, I think it's great that the archive fails and the transmission breaks down um, uh, all over the place. It's two cheers for breakdown. Um, I, would Sappho have been such a great poet if we possessed all 12 of her books? Would Sophocles be such a great play if we had all 100 of his, of his plays as opposed to six? Would, um, by some surveys, you can count uh, Confucius, Socrates, and Jesus as the three most influential teachers of humankind, morally speaking. All three of these figures refused to write their doctrines. They are certainly literate, they certainly read, Confucius edited, but none of them wrote, in their own words, um, spectacularly successful strategy for uh, posthumous influences, <laughs> not, not write anything down. Um, Stuart Brand um, quite, uh, quite mischievously in, in his book, the, uh, the Clock of the Long Now, talks about a monastery in China in which the monks worked to save thousands of years, a thousand years uh, worth of Buddhist manuscripts. And he said, what we really would have wished is that they had ca cataloged their feces by date and that we, we had a thousand-year collection of dried monk poop because if we had a thousand-year collection of dried monk poop, we would actually have access to all kinds of data that we really want to, uh, to uh, have. And it, there's obviously a certain kind of mischief of preferring feces to scripture. Um, but the, uh, the point is, is that often what is most ubiquitous turns out not to end up in the archive at all. One of my doctoral students is, has been working on missing children on milk cartons. Um, it turns out that you can't find these things anywhere. You can find them online in parodic forms. I mean, there are pictures, they're, they're only parodies. We all have a memory. There are billions and billions of these things uh, published. They never made it into, uh, into the archive. I mean, we all have a vibrant memory of these, of the, of these uh, uh, milk cartons. Um, there, there are all kinds of examples um, in which the sort of Ozymandian melancholy about the uh, loss of the past is perhaps not necessarily the, uh, the best way. Ruins are interesting. I mean, ruins uh, can be fabulously um, interesting. I mean, I'm, I'm not trying to give 
you know, two cheers. I mean, not trying to praise the barbarians who want to burn the, uh, the uh, libraries to, to uh, any degree. But what counts as a historical record is exceedingly malleable. Um, we now can do the history of, of the weather in ways that were just unthinkable because we can find little traps of bubble caught in, I mean, of air, little bits of air trapped in the Arctic, Arctic ice cap. And we can figure out what the atmosphere was like. Or dendrochronology, we use tree rings. I mean, there are all kinds of creative ways. I saw a story recently of um, Pico della de um, Mirandola, who is exhumed. Um, and the uh, anthropologist who did this strange act said, his body's an archive. Well, his body's an archive now because we've got DNA analysis. It was a bunch of rotting, you know, it was, it was, it was a cadaver um, 50 years ago. I mean, and it's, I mean I'm sure there are, I mean, I, this is not a narrative of, of, the, of progress of science, but it's very clear that what counts as a historical record is tremendously um, variable. Laurel Thatcher, Ulrich was told when she wanted to study the history of women, there's no evidence, study something else. I mean, we, we all know that that kind of thing, I mean, as has been pointed out, is, a, is, is a ridiculous. Now, in a space-biased moment like the digital era, it may be very irresponsible to be praising uh, attrition at all, because it's obviously one of the most urgent questions that we face. How is any of this stuff going to uh, survive? But I, I still think that sort of you know, one of the great things you can do is to not be a pack rat and just let all that stuff go. Um, at an at a individual level and perhaps, I don't know, at a civilizational level, how we ought to, ought to think about this. And I, I've heard lots of people at this conference sort of thinking about the way that um, the archive can, can work. Finally, um, just a, a comment about transmission storage and uh, an organization which borrows from a brilliant and elegant forthcoming paper by Hartmut Winkler who's a, a German media theorist, teaches at the University of, of, of Paderborn. And he points out that if we think of transmission along the axis of time, what is that? Transmission along the axis of time, well, that's what you call storage. If you think of storage across the axis of space, um, what's that? That's transmission. And, and so there's, there's, there's a very kind of interesting uh, reversibility here in the way that writing takes space, for example. I mean, you have to have space in order to write something. And within the realm of writing, um, it's, it's, time is reversible. You can jump from one part of the text uh, to, to the other. So in order to transcend time, you need to use up space. Just as in order to transcend space, you have to use up time. This was uh, Einstein's brilliant uh, point in the special theory of relativity that a finite signal velocity, in, in fact, means that it, the universe cannot be in complete communication with itself, right? because it always means that, that our knowledge of, of other parts of the universe is going to be uh, temporally bound. So I, I think that as we try to and imagine what time, how time and space and recording and transmission um, interact, we always need to be thinking about how time and space are actually managed, how they are organized, how the choices are made about what gets in and, and what doesn't. So my, my pitch would be that we should be, this conference should be called, this one at least, uh, Storage Transmission and Organization. Thank you. Thank you. And finally, uh, Thomas Pettit, um, a oral historian. Uh, and if you recall, the start of the conference was with John Foley, an oral historian. So we have sandwiched in between the oral histories. 
All right, well, uh, thank you very much. Uh, I'm not certain how elegant or well-structured my remarks will be, quite apart from the strong light shining into my eyes and reflecting off my paper. Uh, my thoughts are not merely maturing, but they are racing uh, as a result of uh, attending this conference, uh, and I anticipate there will be pauses for thought in, in, in what I say. Uh, and I want to say several things at the same time. Uh, and uh, I gather that when one is speaking, one can only say one thing at a time in, in a certain order. Uh, so in order to overcome that, I have made a diagram, which, um, thank you very much to the uh, attendants, uh, has, uh, has appeared on the screen behind me. Uh, and uh, I shall speak to this. Uh, I, I've used some time on this. This indicates some of the perceptions I've achieved in attending these conferences over the last, uh, well, the last three conferences. So it may be, it may be quite obvious to you. Uh, but uh, I'm pleased to have sorted this out, and I'm grateful to these conferences for helping me to sort it out. Uh, I, you see, I distinguish between three levels of, of what's going on, between media technology, uh, the means by which uh, cultural production is stored over time and distributed over space, uh, that the cultural production itself, whatever form it takes, and then what I call the mind work. Uh, I know I should say cognition. Uh, but I would not venture into that field and pretend much knowledge to it, so I've, I've invented my own term, and I call it mind work, and I just mean what goes on in the mind, uh, what, comes, what comes out of the mouth after things have gone in at the ear. It's a very down-to-earth, plain man's notion uh, of, uh, of cognition. And I'll, I'll come back to that in a moment, and, 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 a, diag and a diagram beneath, and uh, that should help me, and perhaps you could also help me by joining me on page 54, if you have the printed program with you. Uh, I think I have a, quite happily, the, the, uh, luckily the organizers have provided me with another visual aid, uh, because on page 54, I'm, Brad Sewell assures me that this is not a deliberate parody of, my, uh, of either my paper last time uh, or, or my, my diagram this time. I think Brad Sewell saw, saw this uh, PowerPoint be before he chose this, uh, this, this picture. Uh, if you found it, just, just, just glance at it with me. This is a wonderful expression uh, of uh, change over time in precisely the, uh, the technology uh, of media. Of course, uh, quite rightly speaking, uh, in this chiastic structure we have, where I, I, I end speaking about oral tradition, among other things, uh, whereas John Foley started the proceedings starting about oral tradition, uh, there's a picture missing. There's one figure missing. There should be another figure uh, going down the hill on the left. Uh, there should be a picture, I suppose, of one, I don't know, one, one caveman whispering into the ear of the other caveman, and I suppose the, uh, uh, the legend should say nattering, if, if, if that works in, uh, in American English as, as, as well as in British. So we start, we start with natter, uh, and we go up the hill, and then we go down the hill and end with Twitter. Uh, and that strikes me as, as being a pretty, a pretty nice uh, structure to the diagram, like the structure to the, uh, to the, to the, to the conference. So with, with, those, uh, with those two visual aids, I will proceed. What I'm offering is a meditation on what's been going on uh, at this conference, uh, but also at uh, MIT 5 and 4. Uh, and I feel myself as speaking on behalf of quite a number of people uh, who've appeared at uh, MIT 4, 5, and 6, whom one would not expect to find uh, at a media studies conference. And indeed, people of that kind may, as far as I know, may not be found at other media studies conferences. Uh, this MIT, M little IT sequence, uh, has been extraordinarily attractive and uh, wonderfully welcoming uh, to people 
working in fields what, that I thought were outside media studies, as often understood. There have been papers on Beowulf, on folk songs and ballads, on Shakespeare, on the 14th century poet Lydgate, on 17th century literature, on narrative, on novels, on oral tradition. There, have in, there has indeed been a paper on papyrus, on cuneiform. In other words, this, these conferences have been welcoming to people who work in what would conventionally be called literature, uh, or who study fields which uh, are old, which are ancient, uh, in relation to pre-modern, or they are, they are in pre-modern, pre-modern media technology. And I, for one, am very grateful to the, the welcome that I've received uh, at, these, at these three conferences, uh, and also the, the welcome extended to my colleagues from uh, the University of Southern Denmark uh, on, on this occasion. I think this reflects something healthy, uh, something, and something very exciting and something very encouraging about uh, this conference, and I presume uh, about the comparative media studies program behind the conferences, when it remi which reminds me to add, uh, it's, it strikes me that uh, uh, the program's uh, graduate students have been uh, more visible this time at the conference uh, and have made a very, very valuable contribution. Uh, it's, very, it's quite clear then that in this place, uh, media, the term media is not restricted to the mass media uh, or to the modern media or to the electronic digital media. Uh, or, 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 or popular mass culture, uh, which, is, which is mediated by, by this technology. It's recognized, this place recognizes that distinction uh, between the technology, the media are the technology, uh, distinguishes between that uh, and the other aspects, the cultural production and the cognition that goes on in those products. Uh, this place acknowledges uh, the assertion made by John Foley in, in the first plenary uh, that oral tradition Oral tradition is a media technology, just as much as internet technology, which we've arrived at today, and everything in between, including what I gather now are referred to, or what your graduate students refer to as the dead tree technologies uh, of, the, of the intervening period. Um, we distinguish, distinguish uh, in distinguishing mind work, cult production and technology in welcoming all these maverick areas that might be so considered from, from at other places, uh, it strikes me that comparative um, media studies here is strategically well poised for what I anticipate, I predict, will be what I would call uh, a media turn uh, in uh, the way, well, in, in, in the humanities and the the social sciences, there have been lots of turns. Uh, there's been a linguistic turn, where, where I come from at least in my field. There's been a linguistic turn, there's been a literary turn, there's been a cognitive turn, uh, and I, I, I feel a media turn coming on. Uh, because media, and, and a permanent turn, because media are real in contrast to some of, some of the other things I've referred to. Those of us, those of us who do literature, those of us who do literature but who have lost faith in uh, literature as a rounded concept, and I'm not quite certain really what it is that we do. Uh, we've sometimes seen ourselves as subspecies of historians, uh, of psychologists, of, as, as anthropologists, as philosophers. Uh, I think over time we, we, we will find our literary studies, people will find their, their true identity within media studies. Literature 
is a form of cultural production, which is mediated. And if we are welcome, as it seems that we are, uh, we should be able to contribute something in return. And I suppose, if anything, we have a distinctive competence in a focus, or a distinctive interest, a focus on the aesthetic dimension. We tend to prefer verbal product, products uh, in which uh, the achievement of form, the achievement of some, uh, is, uh, an aesthetic achievement is, is, is as important as making money uh, or, or conf conveying information. And this is my first challenge to the forum, or perhaps my first suggestion for uh, where you should go from here. Um, have we, over the last few days, uh, in, in our amazement at the aspect of quantity, at all the megas and tetras and so on of, of bytes and bits you've been talking about, have we not, or to what degree have we neglected quality as, as a factor? It's come up from time to time. Uh, we've been talking a lot about, about how much there is and how much of it we should save and, and, and how hard it is to keep it all. Uh, questions of selection have emerged. Uh, I would say, coming from where I come from, I, would, uh, I, I anticipate that, that quality has to be uh, a factor for you in due course. And I'm thinking more about uh, aesthetic quality. And that reminds me to respond to, I think it was Peter Walsh's remarks at the first plenary who said that we, sh we who do Shakespeare should be grateful for the archivists who have preserved the records of Shakespeare's baptism, marriage, and death, which have mainly been conducive to idle speculation about the exact identity of the author or the kind of records that have prompted us to wonder about who was the fair youth, the object of the desire in the sonnets, or who was the dark lady. Uh, I am much more grateful uh, to the printers who published the plays, uh, which we would not otherwise have, we have there being no, no manuscripts of Shakespeare's plays surviving. And since it was also properly mentioned, uh, we should also not be grateful merely for the, 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 the printers themselves were some rather mean capitalist entrepreneurs uh, at the time. We should be grateful to the workers who preserved this material for us, like the people who were digitizing our, our modern records. Uh, these, so the heroes of my story uh, in that connection are the compositors, uh, the compositor who put the, the, let, the metal letters in the, in the forms uh, for the printing of, of the, Shakespeare, the Shakespeare plays. Uh, we know them very well. They are revered and loved in Shakespearean studies, uh, and their names are A and B. Compositor A, and occasionally uh, there's, a, there's a young apprentice called a, a Compositor C who's involved from time to time. We know them and their habits very well. Uh, by the way, they get things wrong or change, change, seem to change the spelling. Their habits are known and appreciated by generations of Shakespeare, and, and we are indeed, uh, we are indeed uh, grateful to them. My second challenge to discussion, or perhaps for, for further consideration, as a newborn newly arrived scholar uh, of media studies, uh, from my special perspective, from wh where I'm coming from, I'm interested in the, the question of the interaction, the, the arrows up and down on my diagram. If we, if we distinguish cultural production from media technology uh, and the mind work which is expressed uh, through or conveyed through the one, the one or the other, 
the interactions are interesting, and the last few conferences have indeed been about this. The, la the last conference, uh, well, the last two conferences, the last one invited us to discuss the ways changes in technology are affecting cultural production, uh, the way that attitudes towards individual works and towards the transmission of works, the business of plagiarism, uh, and, and uh, cutting and mixing and, ma and, and mashing mashups and so on. Uh, that was discussed. And, and then I can see that the call for papers this time extends that. Uh, the arrow going, going higher up in the sense of, as I'll quote in a moment, we are this time invited to, dis to discuss connections between media technology and the kind of thinking uh, that comes out of the, uh, the applications of those media technologies. Uh, and that reminds me again, y yesterday I ventured a speculation in my own paper about the way that media technology may have determined a particular kind of thinking. It was something like, it was something like that, well, I have this notion that uh, somewhat squarish media like pages and books, they, they tend to create squarish artworks like novels and lead to rather squarish thinking. It was something along those lines, it doesn't really matter. But I suffered the indignity, well, I was, I, I was, I was inspired by something like a, 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 a reference in, in a book, recent book, uh, Karin Littow's uh, theories of reading, where she says, media technologies have altered not just our relation to writing and reading, but our perception of the world and perhaps even perception itself. So I thought, I thought I'd have a go at that. Uh, and uh, say, I suffered the indignity of being accused of technological determinism. <laughs> and well, I, I know that's a, that's a sin. Uh, it is, if I can quote another, another source, uh, which is in my paper, it's one of, I, I, I think, this is what's being referred to here, it's one of the social science fictions crafted by Walter Ong and Marshall McLuhan, uh, and we shouldn't do that kind of thing. Uh, and, and yet, and yet, as I had cause to point out, uh, the call for papers frankly oozes <laughs> technological uh, determinism. Uh, Part, firstly, by quoting Harold Innes, in the second paragraph of the call for papers, uh, I, there's a sentence, uh, Innes develops an account of civilization grounded in the ways in which media forms shape trade, religion, government, economic and social structures, and the arts. If I, if I abbreviate that, media forms shape the arts. Now, I, as, a, as a literary student, I, I know about verbs and subjects and objects. There was a verb in there, shape. Its subject was media forms, and its object was, was the arts. And, uh, that's, and uh, that sounds like determinism to me. Uh, and then uh, that was just quoting Innes, of course, but then further down the call for papers, uh, th there's the question, how, how, are shifts, how are shifts in distribution and circulation affecting not merely the stories that we tell, which is the first level up on my diagram, uh, but our notions, uh, our national individual and national identities, our notions of what is public uh, and what is private and so on. Uh, and, uh, well, I, there, there are others. I have detected, uh, I've, I've been through quite a few summaries and found quite a few uh, symptoms. Of, is, that, is that ten minutes? Uh, a couple more minutes. Okay. Fine. Well, I, in, I invite further discussion of <laughs> technological determinism and, and is it all right? Tell, tell, me where, tell me where we stand before next time. Tell me where, where do we stand on technological determinism. Finally then, uh, there's the question of time. Uh, the second, the lower half of my, uh, of my, of my 
PowerPoint slide and, and, and the picture here. Uh, I'm very pleased, of course, that uh, in, in the light of what I said at the, 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 in the conference last time, uh, I have found confirmation in this notion, uh, which I know, which, which I share with, with John Foley, uh, that much of what's going on now, many of the advances now occurring uh, in media technology uh, are taking us back towards... Um, uh, taking us back to conditions as they were uh, before some of the uh, mechanical inventions, before the introduction of, uh, of printing uh, and, and that, kind of, that kind of technology. Uh, so this, this, this business of uh, the future looking rather like the past, uh, as my, um, well, I can see my diagram has been shifted since I saw it last. Uh, it should say activity, artifact, activity. The second activity should be under the, the digital uh, column. Uh, it was central to John Foley's presentation. It was, and in the Gutenberg parenthesis uh, session uh, earlier on, it's loomed behind this this notion that, uh, that the past will look like the that the future will look like the past uh, has loomed behind several sessions. It all, it almost came out during the plenary last night, uh, and uh, John Peter's paper I noticed points to. Um, the relevance of old, even ancient media for understanding the so-called uh, so um, new media. Uh, I've, I've felt that very present uh, in our session, in our sessions, this, this notion. So I will end by uh, offering a, a, a statement that kind of sums up a lot of this. If Shakespeare had been alive today, uh, insofar as he was a literary author, he would have written something like Shelley Jackson's Patchwork Girl, and I've, I'm looking forward to reading the, the, the paper on, on that here. Or, he, as a dram dramatic author, he would have contributed an episode to Story Trek, uh, hypertext, hypertext fiction. Uh, so the, a, a question would be, is hypertext fiction a result of the availability of hypertext? Or was hypertext in some way called forth by our culture's need to write uh, hypertext fiction. Uh, if modern Shakespeare's, and finally, if modern Shakespeare's write masterpieces of hypertext fiction, will modern archivists work as hard to preserve them as my heroes, typographer A and B and apprentice C did to transfer Shakespeare's plays from manuscript to print? Archivists then saved them. <laughs> Thank you. Yes, true. Thank true. you very much. Wonderful. <clears throat> I think uh, I'll ask uh, John to make a comment because I know he has to leave at uh, at the at, at twelve thirty here. So uh, maybe you could comment on further thoughts and also on directions for future conferences if anything comes to mind. Okay. I'll, well, I've really enjoyed everybody's. Uh, comments here and enjoyed the conference immensely and thank, thanks, thanks for the chance. I guess one comment that I, that I wish I had made is when you think about the sort of people who didn't write in, a, in antiquity, they were being resistant against the dominant culture um, by not writing. Perhaps we can be resistant against the dominant culture by writing or, or by uh, resorting in, into that. I mean, I think um, future, future topics, um, I think the idea of... Uh, Religion has always been about storage and, and uh, transmission, given its, its very complicated political and anthropological role at the moment would be a really interesting topic. So media salutis, as they say in, in a Latin, the, the media of salvation, would be a really interesting kind of thing to, to uh, try to think about. Just while we're generating crazy ideas for future conferences, that's, that's one bit I would throw out. Yeah. Thank you. Um, 
So let me open up uh, the conference now. The questions for the summarizers here, and you know, questions about uh, future directions would be most welcome. Comments on the, what's happened here, what your experience has been. Uh, And also, if you will use the, the microphones, that would help. Everybody's buzzed. Yes? Well, maybe I can make a, a quick comment about technological determinism. I notice in the uh, cartoon here, it's got movable type uh, without an E, uh, MOV. A, B. Now, movable type with an E is the Gutenberg uh, metal type system that created mass communication. Movable type without an E is the uh, trademark name of Six Apart's uh, first commercial blogging software. Um, so I'm just wondering that maybe Mr. Keefe uh, uh, of the Denver Post is a little ahead of uh, all of us here. Maybe the bloggers are infecting the past. and. We should just trust them from, from now on. So I wonder if maybe you can comment. <laughs> Not sure who selected that. <laughs> Any comments? <laughs> yes, other? Um, yeah, I, I just wanted to. Um, uh, Offer. Uh, there's been some discussion of uh, of memory in addition to uh, to storage. Certainly, this is something that archivists, people working on digital archival projects, are are very cognizant of how what is preserved affects our cultural memory. But storage has really been foregrounded as the idea we're talking about, and that makes for something of a different uh, concept because storage is like you know I have a half a sandwich left over. Uh, it's a storage problem to keep that for tomorrow when I might want to eat it. But if I go to a city in another country, I have a cultural experience. I understand something about architecture and maybe the language there and, and so on. Uh, I don't want to deal with that in the same way that I do the sandwich. I want to remember that. And, uh, and whereas you know, I might want to throw the sandwich away to make room in my fridge or something like that, uh, <clears throat> I want those memories to be part of my awareness, my cultural experience. And I'm just wondering, I mean, we might very well have computers that have a, a store and a mill inside of them instead of memories and processors. But, um, but it happened that uh, the naming got done one way instead of the other. I'm, I'm wondering if that, if that perspective on, on our memory specifically um, brings anything different to the way we think about what to preserve, how to organize it, definitely an important issue, um, and, uh, and what to forget and what to carry across. Can I have one? Yes. To that. Uh, thank you for the question. I'm not certain I can offer a, a substantial answer, but uh, uh, it gives me the occasion to say something I didn't have time in my own presentation. Uh, I think memory is important, and that's, uh, the importance of memory is another one of those features where the, uh, we are moving back into the past because, of course, memory, in the absence of um, Artifactual uh, storage. Uh, the human memory uh, was was the major was the major storage. Uh, and uh, I, as you may have noticed, uh, I didn't say on my diagram oral tradition. Uh, I'm trying to, among my colleagues in the field, I'm trying to uh, introduce the term memorial, uh, 
uh, because the whole process isn't just oral performance, uh, it is oral performance from memory. Uh, and the two words conglomerate to make, to make a rather neat, the neat expression uh, uh, memorable. And of course, transmission is in the memory. Uh, or, oral performance, oral performance is the way in which uh, a, a, a verbal artifact, uh, a, a verbal product uh, is, is transmitted from one person to another. Uh, but uh, between one performance and another by the same person, uh, the, um, it, is the, it is stored in the memory. Uh, and having said that, that may lead me to some kind of response to the question, because at my end of the scale, where memory is important, where, where the transmission is via the memory, uh, then we know very well uh, that memory is active. Uh, you put something into a memory, something different comes out. It's not just, it's not, in fact, it, that, that is more important than the oral aspect, that you put something into a memory, uh, and uh, memories, while memories are in charge of something, then they, they reshape it into something that they feel more comfortable with. And the result, uh, that was implicit in, in some of the things that, that Dr. Professor Foley was saying uh, at the start, uh, me memory reshapes things into something that's more, it's more comfortable with, so, and, and what, com what comes out is reshaped it, not in a haphazard way. This, this was also the, the topic of MIT4, I recall, how stories change over time. Uh, memory changes its material, but not in a haphazard way, not in an arbitrary way. There's a reshaping, and that reshaping is in certain directions. And you can spot them, you can de determine them. And, well, then the question is, do, can, that can that be transferred in some analogous way to the kind of modern memories that, that, that you're thinking of, of in the question. Do, do the modern memories, do, do digital memories, do other, other forms of memory, uh, is there some analogous way in which they change the material to suit them, to something they're more comfortable with? It's a great question. And I guess uh, in some ways we can think about it as, as, as a possible route through to this question about anxieties about determinism. I, I've been thinking about why it is that in the last five years there's such a renewed interest in McLuhan's work. And I think partly that's because we have a different language. We have a language of complexity where determinism was only really a problem when we were all drowning in relativism, a kind of a critique of relativism that came from social constructionism where determinism seemed bad because it was either or. It, pre it presumed a certain kind of directionality, and so the book affected memory, let's say. Uh, and that seemed too simplistic, and then we were all worried about determinism. But I think that now we have theoretical formulations that are, are reaching for a very different kind of layer of complexity, which is a both and. And so in terms of memory, we have, of course, no easy way of determining what came first, the event or the memory. Well, neither and both. And so the memory is in some way always like the sandwich, which we see in something like uh, Derrida's book, The Postcard. What do you do when you go on vacation? Well, you should get some postcards and record your memories. Well, in some sense, the postcard precedes the memory, makes a particular kind of memory possible, and Derrida's whole analysis of the postcard is as a socio-technical moment of 
artifactually mediated communication that produces the memory. You have to have the stamp. The postcard has to go through the post office. And the postcard in no way can ever, of course, contain the memory. And so here we have this imbrication of past, present, future of, of what we might want to think of as uniquely somehow human, but always, of course, post-human kinds of capacities that of necessity involve artifacts. And so I think the memory question provides us with a very interesting way to get really into just how, in fact, these languages, these complex languages, allow us to think that in some way the memory is like the sandwich. So I think that these are very interesting opportunities for beginning to grapple with the ways that we can move forward on these fronts. I guess there's a problem with trans translating this into terms that might be meaningful for uh, libraries and archives. And um, there's a whole other discourse going on within libraries and archives, which is not to say that um, it's a better discourse or it's more effective. And in fact, it's, it's way too practical as far as I'm concerned. I mean, and because libraries and archives are businesses, essentially, they, um, they're very practical organizations. People show up every day and they have to do things. And so theory, there, there's not a lot of theoretical discourse in library science. Uh, there, there is more in archival sci science. But um, I think it is really important that, that there be more conversation between scholars and librarians. Because I feel like the level of discourse here around what gets saved and how it's organized is just, it's not, I don't know, I guess it's just, it's just insufficient, I, I guess. Um, maybe because there's just, there's been so much written about selection decisions in libraries and archives and what they mean and that, that kind of thing. So, um, and I think scholars need to think about what it is they, they want libraries to have in 10 years. You know, what is it you're going to be really unhappy when you don't find there? I mean, there are things that people don't find there right now. And, and what's at risk are not just esoteric kinds of things. What are at risk are literally um, back runs of academic journals and um, paper copies of things that perhaps we don't need because Google digitized them or we bought um, some database that, keep, that contains these things in full text. And librarians are making decisions every day based uh, largely on economic exigency about what to store, what to discard, uh, what to digitize. And, you know, I, I think we need to hear more about the people who actually use the stuff. Okay. Yes. Maybe identify so, yourself. Uh, yes, John Foley, uh, University of Missouri. A uh, very interesting conversation about memory, uh, especially, I thought, and about the intractability of concepts of storage and transmission, which 
to me, always assume that we are storing and transmitting things at any rate, and I think that's ideologically not tenable in certain of the media. But with, with respect to what uh, Tom Pettit was saying and some of the other panelists too, the idea that in some of our media there is any one final epitomized product to be archived uh, is an illusion. So not only do we have an oral tradition, for instance, somebody performing differently each time they perform, not only do we have different individuals within the tradition performing that same so-called item differently, but each audience member is not uh, an automaton either, and they are receiving it differently. Reception studies uh, in literary terms got at this uh, from the receiving end of things uh, pretty well. Um, a while back, but we haven't really begun to pluralize what happens at the authorial, so-called authorial end. And I just wanted to add two anecdotes that would illustrate that. One is that Anglo-Saxon studies, uh, that is pre the year 1000, recently discovered that even scribes who are copying supposedly verbatim are recomposing in the manuscript. They are substituting formulas, that is one bite for another, and it's quite evident that even though they have pen in hand, um, they are doing something similar to what the singers do as they compose and recompose with combinations and permutations of language bites. Secondly, when uh, Milman Perry and Albert Lord brought a person over to transcribe the songs that they'd created, or the songs they had uh, recorded, sorry, and put headphones on him and gave him little blue notebooks and a pen, he recomposed those as he listened to them and wrote them down in the book. So the idea that we get to some sort of written form, never mind printed form, and the curtain has dropped on variation is an illusion of our ideology with texts. Yeah, I mean, one of the, the problems I see is that we buy these incredibly expensive collections of digitized texts, and they contain one edition, uh, probably because um, that particular edition, they didn't have to pay for rights for, the, for that particular edition. So something <coughs> like Echo, which uh, is 18th century text, it's basically the largest um, digital collection of things written in the long 18th century. Uh, you know, many people have complained that uh, the one edition the one of a text that's in there is in fact the only one available uh, once this product has been created, and how much scholars' hands are tied by the, by the choices that are made by companies who are digitizing these uh, materials. And it sort of, it creates a false sense that there is this one single edition, this is the, this is the work. On, on the positive side, uh, we should recognize, though, that quite a number of publishers uh, are now providing us with multiple text editions of, uh, of major works. Most of the, uh, a lot of the works of Shakespeare, uh, you can get, uh, in, get the volumes getting thicker. Uh, you get the quarto version and the folio version in the same volume or in a parallel, in a parallel publication. And what John Foley said about manuscripts was also, right, is also applies to printed books. Uh, I, I'd heard that too, in the sense that uh, a scribe writing a text uh, seemed, they seem to have remembered a block of words. They read a block of words, remembered them as a block of words, and then wrote them from memory rather than having their eye each time for each word on the, on the uh, page. And the same goes for my friends A and B, uh, the, the, the compositors. Uh, certainly early compositors uh, in the printing shops, uh, they read a line of text, memorized that line of text, because quite physically they had to, they had to turn their head away 
to take the, take the, 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 the metal letters and put them into the form. Uh, as they were putting the letters into the form, they were not looking at uh, the, the copy text, uh, and so it, there, there's a there's a memory there's a memory element uh, for each for each unit uh, each line of text uh, e even in printing. So it's very very impure uh, procedures at all levels. Um, yeah, Rick Prelinger, this was a, a very exciting conference on a number of levels, um, but I wanted to build on what Marlene just said. Uh, I was quite struck this this weekend by the um, historical disengagement between scholars and the evidence that they work with, uh, both in archives and libraries. Um, uh, perhaps a, a story in the moving image world, which is my world from the really until the 1980s, what few moving image archivists they were there were. Uh, they would surprise scholars when they said, hey, there's footage of this. People didn't know, you know, people didn't think about looking at round objects like reels of film that were difficult to find and difficult to access and difficult to touch. Um, and, uh, and now the expectations have shifted and scholars uh, are taken aback when something isn't available in a repository an archives or a library, and we hear these negative uh, reactions when, you know, there's this expectation in the world that somewhere, somehow, everything is being saved by somebody. This is a public expectation as well. And I think that, uh, you know, to me this is an interesting trace because I, I, uh, I, I think that people are not, don't recognize that they have some close relationship to the process of collecting. If they're working on a, on a topic and they expect that somebody else is taking care of it, that's a level of disengagement that I find um, a little hard to understand. And just as in the field of media study, there are those who reflect upon uh, the, the production of others, and then there's the other fork of people who reflect upon the production of others and of perhaps by producing themselves and, and, and working in media themselves. I think that there's also this bifurcation between scholars who collect or scholars who are engaged in the process of collecting, curation, preservation, and access, and those that aren't. And I think, you know, it's probably not a good idea in the long run for scholars to outsource the process of collecting to employees. You know, now librarians and archivists have developed a, a variety of professional discourses and they have somewhat more respect than they used to. But I really, I think that you, you were quite on target, Marlene, when you said that there should be closer involvement. Because otherwise we're going to be complaining about the YouTubes of the world where there's no accountability and it's a black box where, where objects come and go unannounced. Um, <clears throat> we're going to see that again and again. Any comments? An acknowledgement of guilt, I suppose. That uh, is, is quite is quite right. We are we tend to be rather parasitical on the on the works, both of of the collectors and of the people who save the collections for us. Uh, I've I've just had the experience of writing a fairly substantial article uh, on gypsy folk song, the songs folk songs sung by gypsies in England uh, in the 1960s and 70s uh, when I was there. Uh, quite close by. I could have, I could have done that, but uh, we were rather, uh, we didn't uh, behave towards 
uh, gypsies perhaps is the way we should. Uh, but there were others, thank heavens, uh, of my generation. There were other men of my generation who had um, a better attitude uh, and who collected the, the intangible heritage of the English gypsies. Uh, and uh, amateurs, all of them, all, they're all making a living in something else, but they've, they've devoted their spare time to going out and collecting the songs uh, from, from the gypsies at their caravan sites uh, and then looking after them and now publishing them uh, on CDs or on, on, internet, on internet sites. Uh, and I came along uh, and I did a, 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 well, a substantial article, a successful article, uh, but in an entirely parasitical way. I, I had done nothing. Uh, I, and I hope I acknowledge that sufficiently uh, in, in, in the presentation uh, of my article. But yes, we are totally at the mercy uh, of, or we are totally dependent on the activities of those who, who collect and preserve. And, and we are jolly grateful. Thank you. Uh, any further thoughts from the audience on uh, directions for future conferences? Now's your chance to have some input. Uh, we're certainly interested in hearing from you. Any ideas that uh, might have come up uh, at some seminar over the weekend here? We have a big um, we have a big environment conference in Copenhagen in the mm -hmm. autumn. And I was and I'm aware that the word ecology has been used quite a bit in the in the discussions. I'm aware also that there is there has been well there has been an uh, an ecological trend a turn in. Uh, <laughs> In media studies, there, there's a society for media ecology. I'm not, I don't know enough about the field to know about the relationships between that field and other fields. But uh, I would have thought the, uh, if you like, the, the, me the media in the environment and the environment in the media and the media as an environment would be, would be a possibility. <coughs> well, corresponding to, to what's going on. I don't know. That was. David. Well, since everyone is running out of steam, what, what struck me was a, <laughs> what came into my head was a, a magnificent passage from one of Faulkner's lesser known uh, no novellas, uh, which involves a scene in which the, the uh, uh, infamous Snopes family is on trial, but they're such cunning and brilliant Snopeses that, they, that the evidence sort of dissolves and the judge becomes more and more frustrated, even though it is obvious that Snopes is guilty, and finally, when the last piece of evidence, which is presented, uh, uh, collapses of its own weight, the judge says, and this is my comment for, for our session, I can't stand no more. This court's adjourned. <laughs> <laughs> I want to thank um, all the panelists. Uh, I want to thank everybody for coming to the conference. Uh, I hope you stay in touch. Uh, send email, thoughts, any comments, uh, criticisms, suggestions. Uh, we would be more than happy to hear from you. Thanks, and I hope you all have a great trip back.